you know at the end of the holidays where you add some new routines and you've had a chance to reflect and do new things? I want to tell you about two new things that I'm doing. Uh, the first new thing that I'm doing is I'm reading, I'm reading a book. That's, it's not, that's not new in and of itself. Uh, it, the book, let me tell you about the book that I'm reading. It's an updated version of an old, an old story. It's set in northeastern Saudi Arabia, kind of mystical. And it's a story of a guy. <clears throat> he's a shy guy, but he's a criminal. He's a, he's a murderer, and he spends most of his life out there in hiding. And yet, he leads this amazing revolution. And one of the things I've decided to do with this new book that I'm reading, this is my new thing, I've decided just to throw myself into it, pour over it, read it over and over again, get really, really into this new book. Is that weird? Another thing that I've done since we've got back, I've joined a group. Wow. See that almost a, is that me? Can you all still hear me okay? Yeah. Joined a group, uh, and in this group, I go along every week to this group. This group's in CAS, and in this group, I can see these people actually genuinely nervous to see what I'm going to say here. I've in this group, I don't know if you know that I do this, we sing. Every week, this group sings. I don't know if you know that I'm, I'm a bit of a singer, or I, at least once a week, I sing in this group. What are these two new things that I've been doing? I've been, and this is a new um, adjective, I've been Christianing this week. This has been me being a Christian, at least me being a Christian in terms of perhaps what you would see if you were just observing me without really know, knowing what was going on. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about what it looks like in people looking in as we practice our faith. One of the questions I think that the world has of people of faith, people who go along to church, people who hold to the Bible, and it's a question that I have too in me, weaker moments, is how, given the huge progresses that we've made as humanity, the incredible steps that we've taken, how is Christianity still in the game? How are people holding on to this book? How are people still saying their prayers before they go to bed at night? How are people still investing like me in these stories? How are people still wanting to come to a place in a room and sing songs. How is that still a thing? And the reason that's been, I guess, forming in my mind over loads of years, and there's other reasons, but this is just one of the reasons, is that there is, and I've chosen these next two words carefully, there is a dissatisfaction. There is even a disbelief, a dissatisfaction and a disbelief about the answers that our world offers to the critical questions in life. There's a dissatisfaction and a disbelief, not to all of the answers that the world throws out, because they've got lots of answers for everything, but to the critical questions of life. And this passage, uh, the text is going to pop up in the screen in a minute, gives us three beauties. It causes us to think about three beauties that the world doesn't have great answers for, and the Bible does. Um, so one of the questions that we've got, these are the three. Affirmation. One of the questions that we ask as people is, am I, am I good enough? Critical question in life. Am I good enough? Second critical question. What's the point? What's the point of me? What's the purpose of my life? Last critical question is, how am I going to get through this? Am I going to be all right? Our world's got loads of answers. We love to answer stuff. We're living in an age of answers, and yet these critical questions 
I think our world looks on, and I don't just mean the church looks on, I mean the world looks on, the masses look on and go, I'm not happy with the answers, the cleverest answers that we've got. I'm dissatisfied with these answers. Beyond being dissatisfied with these answers, I just don't know if I believe them. So we think about this, we think about this question, am I good enough? And we've made this really easy for ourselves, I think, as a site in the last in the last 20 or 30 years, we've sort of said, you can be who you want to be. Be happy with yourself. You're good enough as you are. What we've done is lowered the bar. But even by saying this, even with this low bar, we're not happy with that. We ache. Even I, as a pastor, aches for likes on his social media. We ache for people to tell us that we're okay. We ache for people to tell us that we're enough. Meaning. Sorry, I've been told to keep going. The, the, the mic's growling at me. They're like, it's just not happy with me. Meaning. What is the point? What's the purpose of this world? And the answers that we get, so we've either got the, predominantly we've got answers, for, answers from ancient Greece, and we've got answers, answers from sort of modern philosophers. And in summary, they say, there either isn't a point, there's no point to human existence, there's no purpose, we're just all on a ball of gas flying around, so there's no real point. Or, be as happy as you can, slash live in the moment. This is the wisdom, this is the accumulator as wisdom of a couple of thousand years, ancient Greece, modern philosophy, that pulls it together. And we say, not just we the church, we en masse say, I'm not happy with this. I hear what you're saying, not just the church, people en masse say, I just don't believe this. I believe that my life, even my little life in Cass, even my little life, my insignificant life, even that's got purpose. That means something. It's deep. It's critical. We don't buy it, I don't think. And the last thing, the last issue that we have is how we're going to make it. And if you feel the weight of that sometimes as you look around at the world and see all the rubbish that's going on or stop to think about your life and all of the social pressures and all of the just, all of the rubbish that hits us every day, the bullying and the nastiness and the need for us to be strong and all the rest of it. How are we ever going to make it through that? And we look at the world's answers and we say, I just don't know if I believe that. And here's the thing, I think. At some point in his lives, answers to the critical questions, at some time in our however long we live, these critical questions, having an answer for them, having a good answer for them, and I would say that the Bible like nothing else that exists, has a good answer for them. These questions will catch up with us, and they'll do us in. Okay, so I'm, that's the sermon in a nutshell. I'm going to just fire through, and you'll be glad to hear it, fire through really quickly three awesome answers that the Bible's got um, to questions that the world doesn't answer very well. And the first one, I don't know if we could have the text up because we're going to go through some of these verses here. The first one that we've got is, the Bible says, you can know, you can know perfect peace, you can, you can sit there in your chair and this question that we ask ourselves, am I good enough? This thing that eats us up inside, you can know, you can have certain peace about that. I am writing to you, so notice the text here, there is, um, it's a different type of text, it's not a different type of text up on the screen, but if you're following along in your Bibles, it's written more like you'd expect to find a poem and it's got a bit of rhythm as, the, as John in this text, he gets a bit excited for an old man. And it's a bit of a ditty, this, but there's a, some recurring themes that you've got to pay attention to. The first thing that we see is children. Notice children, notice sin, 
And notice forgiveness in this little verse. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So the, the first, you'll notice as we go through, he addresses children, adults, and young men. So the first thing we've got to do is how do we, how do we deal with that? Does, that? does that all apply? Does it all apply to me? Can I just, am I a kid? So I just read the kids bit. Do I ignore the other stuff? We'll go through it one at a time, but we'll start here. John, when he writes, and you might, if you're a, if you're a Bible geek like me, you might want to come to me afterwards and say, I don't, don't think I agree with you there. I think I've thought something else for a while. John says, he's an old man. And when you hear old men talk, you've almost got the right to talk about everybody as being your children. When he talks about children, he's not just talking about the children. He's talking about everyone who would call themselves a child of God. So he's talking about everybody. And, he's, and he deals with the subject of sin. Today, in public use, the idea of sin, talking about sin as a thing, as a worldview, it's about as fashionable as Hitler's mustache. I wanted to use an expression that would grab your attention back. It's about as fashionable as Hitler's mustache. It's a concept that we have shoved out of public consciousness. And we kind of deal with it only as, we can kind of tolerate it just as thinking it as a bit of a blip. If you have, if you eat more than you should eat when you're on a diet, you call it a what? You call it a sin. We can kind of, we can tolerate the notion of that. Kind of, kind of like, raise your eyebrows. Oh yeah, bit of a sin, bit of a wrong thing that I've done. Spend enough time in conversation with anyone when we think about sin and we think on, as a, as a society, the public consciousness kind of dismissed the idea. Think about the times when you go behind closed doors and you have a chat with anyone and your conversation goes on. When you get to know them at a deep level, maybe you have a bevy or something like that and you reach a certain point in the conversation where even though on a public level, it's difficult to talk about the idea of an absolute right and an absolute wrong. People get very impassioned and are really convicted about what is right and what is wrong. One of my strongest helps, one of the reasons that my faith is sustained, I think, maybe even one of the reasons that, I, that I'm really convicted about this, is my, is, not my, is, is my conviction of, of sin and the reality of sin and the worldview of sin. It makes sense of the world to me. When I look at a world without this concept, I don't get it. But when I see it through the lens of sin, it makes more sense to me. The Bible talks more of sin, less of a little blip, which is often how we think of it. Oh, man, messed up. He talks about it less like that and more like this lie landslide that from the dawn of time has covered us, wrapped us up, and messed us up, and pulled us in, and embittered us, and confused us, made us angry, and made us trip up. And it's this, it's this that causes the human dissatisfaction. It's this, this is what I'm putting to you, this is my suggestion. It's at this that's at the heart of our dissatisfaction. This that's at the heart of us thinking that I'm not good enough. This that causes us to think we need to prove ourselves. It's really just us being separate from our creator. That's what it is. Sin clouds everything, messes everything up. 
And as Paul writes this letter to this, if, these Ephesian people, they, like us, I think, look at it, and this is why he writes it into them. They look at it and they think, this sin, it's all around, that I keep seeing and I keep getting messed up amongst, this, this, is, this is ruining me, and it will ultimately ruin me, and I can't get away from it, and it leaves me with a nagging hole and a nagging ache in my life. And John writes to them, and he says, you see it up there in the text, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. He says, I'm writing to you, people who people of faith. I'm writing to you, people of faith, lost in this and confused by this. And what I'm saying to you is, this doesn't stick to you. Because of Jesus, this doesn't stick to you. Because of Jesus, you thinking that you go and you, I think part of what was going on in Ephesus at this time was they've got Christians who are getting, because of the sin mess all around them, thinking that they need to do all sorts of strange rituals, constantly prove themselves. John says, you've got nothing to prove if you're in Jesus Christ. One of the lesser known consequences of sin, I think, one of the things that we don't really get that et up about or don't bother about too much, and I guess people like me don't talk about too much, is this feeling that we're not enough. I'd say that that's sin. Sin causes that. Sins, and all that that is, is a gulf between us as human beings and our creator. That's what the nag is. And we might think, oh, it's just because I'm not as good looking as I want to be, or I'm not as popular as I want to be, or as not, I've not got my, you know, I've not got the status that I deserved. The Bible says, look at it through the, the lens of sin. Here's what I'd say to you, end of point one. Don't break your heart or don't feel broken in order to prove yourself. The Bible says this is a God and sin thing. This is a am I in contact with my God thing. That's the first point. Second point is we want, we ache and we're dissatisfied and we disbelieve the answers that are given to us on the meaning of life. Everybody is convinced that it's something behind it. Our lives matter. Even living here in Cass, even me going home to the little house in Cass down the road, it matters. I'm writing to you and this is the Bible's. So this is what I would say is the Bible's answer. I'm writing to you, fathers. So he changes his tact, look, looks across the room at some different people. Because you know him who is from the beginning. So you ask again, do I, am, I, am I a father? Do I have to listen to this? Who's he talking about? Who are the fathers? So there's lots, there's a bit of conjecture about this. There's a bit of disagreement about this. Some people think that he's talking to more mature Christians. Could be. When you read and you do a bit of study into the, the, the use of this word, more often than not, it's talking about literally. So you, you find this verse in the, uh, when Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy's young, and he tells him, talks to him about older people. He's talking about a literal age. He's, as John writes this letter, he's literally looking around at people who are literally older, not just further on in the faith, literally older guys who, now think about the context. This is AD 80, 90, something like that. Older guys in the crowd who lived long enough to see what? He says, you've seen him who is from the beginning. 
He's saying to the people listening, you fathers, slightly older ones, you were around when Jesus was around. And this kind of this got a bit of a double meaning going on here. He says, you've literally seen him who was from the beginning. You saw him incarnate, as it were. You saw him come from the beginning. But in seeing him come from the beginning, in seeing Jesus, what have you seen? Joel opened the door for us beautifully on, on one of the words here that we're going to, I want us just to look at. Really important in the book of John. It's this, this idea of knowledge and this word known. I'd say the word known has lost, it's one of these words that's really lost its depth of meaning, particularly in the last couple of hundred years. We use it with the idea like, do you know um, Elsie from, oh man, I get, I get all, when I do an anecdote that I've not raised, I get all old in Yorkshire. Do you know so-and-so from down the road? And you go, oh, is that her with the perm? Even more Yorkshire. <laughs> and yeah, look at Boydie, Boydie's cringing here. And you go, yeah, I know that. You can. And when you say you know them, it's like, yeah, kind of, I've seen them, I know, I know who they are. When the Bible uses this word known, like that is, we have reached such a shallow understanding of this idea of known. Joe opened the door beautifully last week, and he used like a risque illustration. It's a biblical risque illustration, but he kind, he kind of cautiously trod through it. He referred to, when the Bible uses the word known in relation to Adam and Eve right at the start, Adam knew his wife, Eve. And as he said it, he was like, I'm going to be cautious here because I don't want to... He was been a good preacher and he was being cautious, but I'm going to be less good and jump through the door. He was talking about when they cement their physical relationship. I'm really impressed that I didn't say that in a worse way. I'm really encouraged by myself. He was talking about this intimate point in their relationship. And when the Bible talks about knowledge, it's not just, yeah, I know, I know about that. I know that two plus two is four, whatever else. I know Elsie down the street with a perm. I know that. It's I know in an intimate way. I know in a way that is changing my life. That, that's, that's, what the, that's what John's saying here. He says, you know Jesus. You know him from the beginning. You didn't just see him. You didn't just go, oh, there was the, you mean the guy from Samaria? That guy? That's not what he's saying. He says, you knew him. When you saw him walk around, and you lived long enough to see him walk around, when you saw him teach, when you saw him go to the cross, and when you saw him raised again, you saw him. You, and what happened wasn't just, ah, oh, yeah, I know that. It was intimate. It was life-changing. It affected you. When... We say, again, as, as Yorkshire people, one of the expressions that we use, you go to somebody, oh, what do you know? That's one of, does anyone else say that? Is it just me? Well, I think other people say that. You say, what do you know? And if somebody came back to you and went, I know that, you know, they give you a fact. Can you imagine they just give you, like, I know, sometimes more literal people might well do that. What do you know? And they'll go, oh, yeah, I know that, um, you know, I know this. But that's not what we're asking, is it? When you say, what do you know, you're saying, we are connected. I want to be your friend. I want you to share a story with me. I want us to spend some time. I want us to interact. When we, when the Bible refers to us knowing Christ, it says that we knew him in a way that changed us ultimately. And it says in this verse, when it talks about us knowing him who is from the beginning, it's like you knew Jesus and you saw in him God and you knew that. It was a game changer. And when you knew that, it changed everything. It didn't just become something that you knew. It did what? 
It gave purpose and meaning to your life. You knew the originator of all things. When you see Jesus live and when you see him die, you realize that the universe has got purpose and you can see what it is. And you know God and the originator. And you can see not that there's just a God or some drafty being that floats around. You can see that he's good and he cares and life matters. For people that know Jesus Christ, you've got real purpose. You can connect with your purpose. Last thing, last point. We look at life and we think, I'm never going to get through this. The question that we have is, like, how am I going to get through this? And the Bible says something. This is a beautiful bit. This is a beautiful verse. If you've been drifting through with the rest of my sermon, hang on to this bit. It says that we can overcome. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. When he writes to young men here, like the older men, he's writing to them literally. This is literally the younger people listening in. John, I think, looks at them and he sees them. I don't know if you know what, much about what the church has been going through at this point. It's been rough. It's a rough time to be a Christian. The Romans were pretty angry, AD 70 plus. They were, it was brutal. And not only was it brutal, you know, you can imagine, he sort of sees these young men facing that Roman persecution, but not just that. There's lies and deceit and confusion. You know, the thing that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, there's this bunch of people that have left the church coming out with all sorts of nonsense, really confusing it. And John looks at them and he thinks, he, see, he sees the young men there and he sees what the young men are thinking. And the, th- the young men, are th- I think, think often like young men and young people will think today, how on earth? Am I ever going to get through this? How am I going to get through this? If you, when you look out at the world, like on a global scale, put the news on or anything like that, and there is a horrible war going on almost every night at 10 o'clock, and you look at it and you go, how's our world ever going to get through that? When we look around at our society, and if we look at it long enough, if we stare into it long enough, we think, oh man, how... We think about us making it in our careers or trying to get through life being a good person or any good person trying to exist. You think, how are they going to get through that? Think about us on a personal level, trying to live out a Christian life, just you on your own trying to make it as a Christian. I look at it and I think sometimes, how am I going to... There's so much rubbish. There's so much pressure. There's so much temptation. There's so much nastiness. How am I ever going to get through to the other side of that? John says something that I just awesome, just should blow you away. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, not because I'm sure you're going to be all right or anything like that. He says, look what he says, you have, it's absolute, you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, young men, because you're strong. You've overcome the evil one. And the question that you should have straight away is, if, you've, if you're even thinking about this at all, is how? Does it feel like that to you? Do you feel like that? Do you feel like that's a guarantee? Do you feel like you've overcome? Do you look around and think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How are we, 
how have we, how are we going to overcome all that? How have we overcome all that? How, how on earth can we stand in that spot? He says to them, 2.14, he says, you're strong. And the word of God lives in you. And he says to them in chapter 4, verse 4, great verse in 1 John. Have a look at this one. The one who is in you, this is a critical verse, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. What he's saying is even as you look out and think, I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, whether in a literal, secular sense, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, or in a personal Christian sense, I don't know how I'm going to get through the next week without falling into sin and hating the person I live with or the person that's my boss. I don't know how I'm going to get through that. He says to them, him that is in you, stronger than all of that, all of that rubbish. The revelation that is going on inside of you. You looking at that cross, accepting Christ to come in, accepting God's spirit into your life. That, the fruits of the spirit, they're kind of either bursting out of you or just about getting there. That, that change in your life. That is more powerful than whatever is going on out there. You're an overcomer. You have overcome. Three awesome promises, I think. Lastly, I just want to close out this, this text, really cool text. Um, it talks, talks if, if you notice in the text, it talks to children, uh, it talks to young men, and it talks to fathers, talks to us at the different seasons of life sort of intimated all the way through, does this mean that some of this stuff applies to me and some of it doesn't apply to me? Am I, am I not able to be strong if I'm old? And am I not able to be fully informed about Jesus if I'm young? Is that what it's saying? It's not, it's not saying that, I don't think. But what it does say, and what the Bible does say, I believe, is the age the age you're at, the years under your belt, the spot that you're in right now is significant. It's a significant thing. This is a really countercultural message, I think. Our society tries to sort of dumb down any impact of age. You can be really young and, make, and get given the opportunity to make incredibly adult decisions at the moment. Kids really young have been asked to make really adult decisions. And people in older age are increasingly pressurized to try and look as young as they can. We're trying to, we're trying to ignore as much as we can, the, I think, the human flow of life. It's kind of a cultural reaction to sort of dumb it down. And the Bible says, if you do that, you miss the beauty of my brilliant creation. It says to us here that there's a time for somebody who's a bit younger to seize. The stuff that somebody who's a bit older is going to know that somebody who's a bit younger might not have got yet. What I want to leave with you is you might, you might look at your life and you might think, well, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian a while, but I'm pretty sure that the next season of it is going to be the chance where I'm going to be able to really kick on. Just right now, it's just crackers. It's just no peace. Or you might think, the next season of my life is going to be the season I'm really going to enjoy, but just right now I just feel a bit unfulfilled, etc., etc. One of the things I would say, even though that this is all like complicated and messed up, is God created you 
had a plan for you, created this idea of life, and the spot that you're in right now is his appointed time. The spot that you're in right now, the stuff you know right now, you might look back and go, oh, if I, was, if I had my life again when I was younger, I'd do this, or when I'm older, I'll do this. Right now, God has shaped you to be where you are and equipped you to be where you are right now.